today wrapping up Good Goals, Bad Gods, and we've just been doing this series. Adam did a great job last week uh, because we've been looking at, at the fact that this time of year is when a lot of people make goals. Some of you have made goals, right? Uh, beginning of the year is when you make goals. That's when you say, hey, this is what I plan on doing. Some of you have talked to me about your goals. Some of your goals are really, really good. For some of you, it's like, man, I have this health goal, right? I'm going to get in shape, lose weight, whatever it might be. Some of you have financial goals. Some of you talked to me, said, I'm going to make a budget. I'm going to get out of debt. Some of you have uh, spiritual goals, right? And that's, that's a good thing to do. Uh, I'm going to start doing things that are going to draw me closer in my relationship with God. Some of y'all got crazy goals. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, somebody talked to me and said, my goal this year is to run a 100-mile race. That's just crazy. Can I get an amen on that? That's just crazy, right? Somebody said, I'm not going to shave this year. Uh, God, I'd be with you, brother. I don't know. But uh, some of you got goals like I'm going to read. I met one guy. One of you said to me, I'm going to read one book every week for the entire year. Imagine, that's a pretty good goal, right? And I hope you make it. Goals are good things right? I don't know what your goals are. You ought to have goals, by the way. Let me just say that. I want to make sure we say that. You ought to have goals. If you don't have goals, right, you're never going to hit anything. You ought to have goals, right? Goals are good things. Here's what we've been saying. When those good things, our goals become the ultimate thing, they become a God. When those good things become the ultimate thing in my life, they become a God. And you don't have to have grown up in church. You don't even have to know much about the Bible uh, or anything like that to know that one of God's top tens, the top top ten commandments, so to speak, uh, speaks about having other gods in our life. Here's what it says in Exodus. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so we've just been saying this, when goals that are good become ultimate, they become a God in my life. They become the very thing that takes the priority in my life. They become the ultimate passion of my life. They're the thing that gives purpose to my life. They're the ultimate voice in my life that I listen to. They're the thing in my life that I arrange my life around. That's what we've been saying. And so as we've been talking about what that means, we said, well, if that's the case, that means this. That means my interests, right, my interests can turn into idols. That means my goals can turn into God's. And when I think about what that means, what it means for me to have idols in my life, it's not some statue I have in my house, right? We talked about that. But the idols in my life aren't in my home as much as they're in my heart, right? Ezekiel says it this way. Ezekiel says these men have set up idols in their hearts, that the idols that I have, that you have, that we struggle with are idols in our heart. Our hearts are idol-making factories. Now, here's what we said. I want to go somewhere very important today. Uh, I I actually think today is going to be relevant to all of us in the room, and I think it's going to be hard for some of us in the room. Can I just say that? So I'll just get that out, right? You're like, yay, right? But I think it's going to be hard, right? I've already done it once. People are like, oh, man, right? Okay, but, 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 but we need to talk about this because identifying, you ready? Identifying the things, keyword, the things that are idols in my life, exposing the things that are idols in my life, well, that's kind of easy and obvious. And getting rid of them might be a different thing, but identifying things in my life that are gods and idols, that's easy and obvious. But what happens, what happens, you ready? What happens... When my idol isn't something, but it's someone. What happens when all of a sudden a person all of a sudden becomes a God in my life or a relationship takes the place of an idol in my life? Now, now here's what I know. I already know some of you are going to discount what I'm going to say because you're like, well, that's obvious, Dan. We live in an American idol kind of culture, right? I mean, we love to idolize our stars and our athletes, right? I mean, today, tonight is a showcase for that, right? We idolize athletes, right? And so we call athletes things like they're the goat, 
Raise your hand if you know what that means. I just want to see who I'm talking to, right? Okay. See, that's how common the lingo is, right? Because goat is a good thing, right? Back when I was a kid, goat would have been a bad thing, right? But goat is the, say it with me, greatest of all time, right? And so a lot of people are saying, hey, the quarterback tonight might be the goat, right? The greatest of all time. Or we deify our superstars and we call them the king, right? We call them the king and it's like, wow, we love and we all of a sudden and we get crushed when he leaves and he comes and all that kind of stuff. And so what happens is we idolize our athletes. It's not just athletes. Some of us in the room, we idolize singers, right? That's why people wait in long lines to go see their favorite singer, whoever that favorite singer is. I don't know who your favorite singer is. I, I had a bunch of young people tell me all the cool singers today and this, that, and the other thing. And maybe you have a favorite singer and maybe you'd wait in line, pay a lot of money to go and see that singer sing. I don't know where you're at with that. We idolize singers. I don't know about you, but for me, the singers that I idolize or I struggle idolizing, this is my group right here. Have you ever heard of this group? Some of you are like, I don't know anything about that group, right? How many have ever heard the homecoming? Anybody heard the homecoming? A couple, couple of you, put your hands down. On the left, we have the Jonas Brothers. You're like, man, they're kind of old now, but we got the Jonas Brothers. On the right, we have the homecoming band. And the homecoming band, on the very right, that happens to be your worship pastor, Pastor Aiden, amen? And that, yeah, look at that. He's looking all cool and right, like, what's up, right? In the middle is our IT guy in the back, Mike, right? And then we have Matt McVaney, some of you know here, right? But, but that is when they were teenagers, man. They ran a band. And so I actually have a T-shirt of the homecoming, right? But it becomes easy to idolize singers and actresses, even world leaders, right? Even world leaders. On a more serious note, we can idolize world leaders like, man, they're the hope of tomorrow. They're the one that's going to save us from. They're the whatever the case may be. And, and here's what I, I know. When we idolize people like that, athletes, stars, actually, we get mesmerized. Stay with me on this. We get mesmerized with the life that we see on the outside. We get mesmerized with the part of their life that we get to see. And on the occasion, we get to see the part we don't normally get to see. Sometimes it crushes us. It disappoints us. Because we're like, wow, I was so, and I thought, and they were, and then all of a sudden somebody does a news report like, oh, wow, right? And it can absolutely disappoint and crush us. It happens not just on the world stage, but did you know this? It happens in the church world. We get mesmerized with church leaders, religious authors, speakers, right? All kinds of people in our life that we get mesmerized with, we idolize, we worship. I mean, everything they say, this speaker, he's so great. Everything he says must be absolutely right. I listen to it. It is the authority. That person writes this book and they're an incredible author. And so I write, read everything they write and what they write must be true. That person has a really big church. And so they must be right on and they must be all about that. We idolize religious leaders, even religious leaders who come and say, I'm really, really good looking. And so I want you to idolize me. We idolize just about everybody, right? Here's what I can tell you. I, I, I can tell you, that's a piece of cake to identify, right? When we idolize world leaders, athletes, it's like, okay, that obviously, that obviously is something that probably is not good to do. But listen, listen, everybody lean in. What happens when we idolize the people in our life that are closest to us? What happens when the relationships right around us become gods in our life? You're saying, Dan, what are you talking about? What happens when all of a sudden our spouse becomes a God in our life? Our children become a God or an idol in our life. What happens when our friends become idols in our life? What happens when our boyfriend becomes an idol in our life? 
What happens when our girlfriend or the boyfriend we wish we had or the girlfriend we wish we had becomes an idol in our life? Can I just suggest that's much more subtle and even much more dangerous? It is much more subtle and even much more dangerous when that happens. It's not only subtle and dangerous, but it's very confusing. And it ought to be confusing to you because if you're sitting there like, well, Dan, this is what you ought to be asking. Dan, if you've come here for any length of time, doesn't God tell us to love people? And you would be right. You're like, I thought that's what you preach and we talk about and the whole neighboring series and all that. Aren't we supposed to love people? It's very confusing then. Are you saying that these people that I love can somehow be a problem? Because Jesus, when he boiled the Bible down, we talk about this all the time. When he boiled the Bible down, he was asked a question. What's the most important thing? He said, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Love God. And then he says this. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And it's like God is saying, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I'm going to simplify the story of the Bible. I'm going to boil the Bible down. And here it is. Love God, love people. And we've talked about that in this room. You've heard me talk about it. And you've heard me say, well, my family is my first neighbor. I'm supposed to love my family. And and, and everything in the Bible hangs on this. It all goes together. Love God, love people. I can't say I love God and not love people. So Dan, how in the world these relationships close me? How do they become God's in my life? Stay with me, lean in. I want you to get this. This is so important. Because loving God and loving people go together. Everybody look here. But the order matters. He says, I want you to love God. That's the first and greatest commandment. Why does the order matter? I want you to write this down somewhere in your notes. When I love God first, I'll love people more. When I love God first, and you can even add the word most. When I love God first and most, I'll love people more. On the flip side, when I love people first, I love God less. When I love people more or first or most... In my life, I'm going to love God less. Now, here's the kicker. And subsequently, I'll end up loving the people in my life less. When I flip the order, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to literally love God less. And when I flip the order, I'm going to end up loving the people in my life less. Here's the point. It is a good goal to love my spouse. It is a good goal to love my kids, my friends, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my neighbors, whatever it might be. But when those relationships become the ultimate, become the, 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 the ultimate thing that I draw purpose and passion and priority from, they become the God in my life. When I expect those relationships to satisfy all of my deepest longings, they become my God. When it is those relationships and the approval from those relationships that matter more than anything else, it's become a God in my life. When, listen, lean in, this is tough. When I ignore or change what God says to keep that relationship, it's become a God in my life. Reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. You have it open in your laps. Everybody look here, I got to talk to you. Some of you are like, I'm not really somebody who reads the Bible much. So I'm going to just tell you something right up front. This story in Genesis 2 is a head scratcher. 
that this story in Genesis 22 is one that's like, what? Literally, if this is your first time going through it, you'll be like, you, what? And it's a story that you got to stare at. you got to keep staring at because if you don't stare at it, the beauty of it won't pop. The story in Genesis 2 actually begins back in Genesis 12. But here's the story. It's about a guy named Abraham. And Abraham belongs with this, this family of idol worshipers. But Abraham attaches his heart to God. And God makes this promise to Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to go where I'm sending you. And, and, and then Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Here's the problem. When God told Abraham that, Abraham didn't have any kids. That's a problem. And by the way, Abraham's about 75. Abraham listens to God, leaves his country, goes where God sends him. God's going to make a nation of me. And with each year when no child shows up, it seems impossible that God is ever going to come through. Eventually, Abraham and his wife, whose name is Sarah, take matters into their own hands. Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant, produces a son whose name is Ishmael. That's a long story. God says, that's not what I promised. That's not what I was talking about. Eventually, about 25-ish years later, 25 years later, when Abraham is 100, just think about that. I'm a granddaddy at 52. I can't imagine being a first-time daddy at 100, right? God blesses Abraham and Sarah with a child. His name is Isaac, which means laughter. And the story in Genesis chapter 22 is one that as we read it, it actually screws with your mind a little bit. You've got to keep staring at it because if you don't stare at it, it's almost like one of those ink blots. You won't see what it is at first. The more you stare at it, eventually the picture pops. Here's the story. Genesis 22 starts this way. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, the one you've been waiting for, probably a teenager, maybe even close to a young adult, take him and go to the region of Moriah. Sounds great. Little father and son bonding. Love it. Oh, Abraham sacrificed him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Come again? <laughs> what? You, you mean the son you gave me, you promised me, the son that I love? You're going to have to say that again, man. You mean to what? And you got to understand, this whole idea of child sacrifice in Abraham's ears, it's crazy to us. It's like, whoop. Listen, it, it would have happened in his culture. The gods that the people around him would have been serving, they literally, this wouldn't have been that uncommon. I know it's crazy. And it's as though God is saying to Abraham, hey, listen, this is the culture you live in. I'm curious, Abraham, if this good thing, Isaac, has become the ultimate thing, or if you're willing to listen, even though right now it doesn't make sense to you, if you're willing to listen to me as the ultimate voice in your life, as the ultimate one that you'll worship in your life, as the ultimate in your life. Because what is ultimate in your life is God. And God wanted to know, is Isaac ultimate or am I? 
And guys, the relationships in our life can subtly and in a very sneaky fashion become the gods in our life. People become my God when I expect them to satisfy all my needs. That's what happens. People become my God when it's their applause in my life that matters most. People become my God when I ignore or change what God is saying in order to keep a particular relationship. And people become my God when their success or failure is what my identity is tied up with. And in this story, in, in, in dramatic fashion, God is testing Abraham to see if Isaac, his son, this good thing has become the ultimate thing. If this good thing has become his God. Has this good thing become the ultimate thing in your life? Why? Because there's something important for you and I this morning. And that's this. When I don't surrender my relationships to God, people become my God. When I don't surrender my relationships to God, people become my God. You're saying, what are you talking about, Dan? I'm talking about the people closest to us. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. My children become my God when my need to be liked by them supersedes my willingness to lead them like God asked me to. My children become my God when my identity is wrapped up in their success, and I take way too much credit when they succeed. My children become my God when I'm devastated by their failures and take way too much responsibility. My children become my God when I think, don't look at anybody here, they can do no wrong. And anytime someone insinuates they're wrong, I get defensive. My children become my God when I set God on the back burner to pursue a very busy life looking for another God for my kids. You're saying, Dan, what are you talking about? I'll just tell you what I'm talking about. I sat in my office about a month ago with the dad of a young adult son. He was talking to me. He said, Dan, can you help me? I said, let's talk. What's going on? He said, my son, not really following you, whatever and whatnot, and I said, man, let's just talk about how you can have influence in his life and so on and so forth. And, and I asked him this question. I said, if you could go back, would, is there anything you would do differently? He said, bingo. He didn't even have to think. He said, this is what I'd do different. He said, when my son was in middle school and high school, I did everything to make sure they were in every sport, every activity. And I did everything to make sure they were successful in all of those things, that they were the stud athlete that they were the star baseball player they were the whatever fill in the blank and while we did that we put God and everything here on the back burner and now that my son is a young adult what he needs in his life most is what we put on the back burner then you see my children can become my God we live in a culture that idolizes our children my children are my God when the most important thing is that people are impressed with my kid. My children are my God when I give them whatever they want, even if it's not wise. My children are my God if somehow I become a helicopter parent, shielding them from the consequences of their own decisions. My children become my God when they get in trouble in school and I immediately think it's the teacher's fault. Because my kid could never do that. My spouse... 
can as well become my God. My spouse becomes my God when I expect my spouse to meet all my needs. My spouse becomes my God when I, what I want from them, listen close, is more important than what God wants for them. My spouse becomes my God when I'm disappointed that we don't have the perfect marriage and somehow it's their fault. My spouse has become my God when I expect them to fill the emptiness in my soul and bring meaning to my life. My spouse has become my God. It's not just our spouse and kids, it can be our friends. My friends can easily become my God when the voices of my friends become more prominent than the voice of God. My friends become my God when my identity is wrapped up in how many likes or comments I've garnered on social media. My friends become my God when I'll do anything to keep them or anything to get them, even ignore or change what God says. For some of us in the room, and I get to hang out with young adults quite a bit, and for some of you, you're young adults and high school students, and I just, I just want to shoot straight with you. My boyfriend or girlfriend can become my God. You're saying, how does that happen? My boyfriend or girlfriend can become my God when my need to have one becomes the ultimate thing in my life. My boyfriend or girlfriend becomes my God when breaking up with them devastates me or paralyzes me from being able to go on with my life. My boyfriend or girlfriend becomes my God when, ready, lean in, I will do anything to keep mine, even if that means changing or altering what God says. I'm just uh, saying, what are you talking about there, Dan? I'll just tell you what I'm talking about there. I meet with tons of people. And occasionally, I'll have a guy or a gal come in, and this is what they'll say. They'll say, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to listen to what Jesus has to say in in, in regards to my relationship with this person. And I want to listen to what Jesus has to say when it it comes to, to sex. And the idea of sex being in the confines of marriage, and that's where the beauty of it's expressed and experienced. And yet my boyfriend is insistent that we have sex together, and I so want to keep this relationship that I do what he wants instead of what I know God wants. What has happened is he's become my God. See how it works? See, what happens is when I won't surrender my relation, it's kind of quiet, right? I get it. So I told you it's going to be tough. When I won't surrender my relationship to God, people end up becoming my God. And when people become my God, here's what's counterintuitive to us. When people become my God, I end up loving those people less. I'm going to say it again. When people become my God, I end up loving them less. You're saying, why do you say that? I want you to write this down. When people become my God, I end up sacrificing them. Eventually, I sacrifice them on an altar of my expectations. I end up sacrificing. My wife was never meant to bear up under the weight of satisfying all my needs. My, My wife was never meant to carry that weight. I meet with people, husbands who are crushed under the expectations of their wife that they were never meant to meet. 
children who are crushed under the expectation of parents. You, you got to succeed because I got skin in the game and my identity and you've got to. And if you don't, if you fail, I'm devastated, I'm crushed. See, what happens is eventually people get crushed under the weight of my expectations and I'll expect my relationships to deliver what they cannot, will not, never could in my life. And they'll devastate me, they'll crush me. And they'll crush them. Here's what happens. My expectations become premeditated disappointments in my life. That's what happens. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Everybody look here a second. This is so tender, but I, I want, the solution, I think, is hidden in the rest of this story in Genesis 22. But, but listen, you have to stare at it. You have to keep looking at it. Because if you read it and walk away, you're going to be like, what? Is that story really in there? And I know people who've walked away from God as a result of this story. Because they didn't stare at it long enough. You have to stare at it. And the more you stare at it, all of a sudden, the picture, the power that God is trying to communicate becomes real. And when you see that, it will color the rest of your relationships and how you look at them. It will color the way you relate with your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend. It will color the way you relate with your children. You're saying, Dan, help me understand that. I'd be glad to. Genesis 22. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants, and he had his son Isaac. They're going to go on a trip, four of them. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. It's a three-day trip. Can you imagine? Just, just let the Bible be real for a second. Can you imagine the conversation on the way? Can you imagine, like, how does Abraham talk to his son on the way to this? Hey, hey Dad, what's up? Like, Abraham's not feeling real jovial, my guess is, right? Abraham's not sleeping real good at night. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. So he says to his servant, he says, Why don't you stay here with the donkey while I and the boy are going over there? And then we get a hint as to what Abraham was thinking. He says to the servant, he says, we, the boy and I, we're going to go and worship. And then look at that. What's the next word? We will come back to you. Here's what Abraham somehow believed. God was so ultimate in his life, even though I think he had to be a little confused, even though I think he had to be a little like, what is going on here? He believed so in the character and the goodness of God that he wasn't sure how they were coming back, but they were coming back. In fact, if you read later in the story of God in Hebrews, somehow Abraham believed that even if Isaac dies, he believes God's gonna bring him back to life. He's like, I just, God, you are so ultimate in my life, the ultimate voice in my life, the one that I ultimately want to follow. And he says to the servants, we're going over there and we're going to worship the one who's ultimate in our life. And I'm not sure how he's going to do it, but he's always going to act like God. Somehow he's going to show up like God. So it says, Abraham then took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, think about this. Can you imagine? They're walking. They got everything for this burnt offering. Isaac speaks up. And he says to his father, Abraham, "Uh, Father, and you can almost feel it. I don't know. I like to think of it this way. Abraham's like, oh, man. 
Like, like do your kids ever ask you a question? You're like, oh, I wasn't sure when that question was coming, right? I get the sense Abraham's like, yeah? Isaac's no dummy, right? Because he says, the fire and the wood are here. Oh, boy. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac's like walking with his pops. He's like, man, this is cool. This is awesome. We're going to do this. We're going to worship together. Hey, Dad, you're pretty good at planning. You're always prepared. We got the wood. We got the fire. We got, man, Dad, we're missing something. Where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The one whose voice is ultimate in my life, the one who I'm following, the one that I trust, the one that I'm worshiping, I don't know, I, I don't know the answers to this, but I trust him. I'm surrendered to him. And even this relationship with you, I'm surrendered to him. It's like, what? And so the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God told them about, Abraham starts building the altar and he arranges the wood on it. Then he binds his son. And he lays him on the altar on top of the wood. And if you're Isaac, let it be real. Let him be real. Just let him be real. Hey, Dad, this has been cool. Dad and son bonding, right? It's kind of extreme and like awesome. It's like we're going right to the edge. And like, oh, yeah. Like, but can we be done? (laughs) Like, like, what's happening here, Dad? And Abraham is so, so, God, you are, I don't know what is going on, God. And then he reaches out his hand and he takes the knife and it's like, how far will you trust God? How much is God the ultimate in your life? Is there anything that God couldn't ask of you that you wouldn't do? That minute, angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham, thank goodness. Abraham's like, I'm right here. Don't you dare lay a hand on that boy. Don't you do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, or put it this way, now I know God is the ultimate in your life. Because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Can you just look here a second? Like, can we just do that for a minute? Like, what? Like, like, what's going on here? Like, like God is testing Abraham, and, and, and he's not going to test you the way he just tested Abraham. Like, go do this, because that, that wouldn't make sense. You'd be arrested, right? right? But, but he's testing Abraham in a culture where that was not that abnormal. And he realizes that Abraham's willing to trust him to the ultimate degree. And he says, stop. Now that I know that I'm ultimate in your life, you're free to love that boy in a way that you never could have understood before. Why is this story in there? Is it in there so that you and I can go and do likewise? No. (laughs) Like, Like, that's not how you read this. Why is this story in here? Here's why it's in here. Please hear me. I beg of you that you hear me. That when you read your Bible, you have to stare at it long enough. You have to stare at it. Keep staring at it. Because there's something in the middle of this strange and confusing and twisted drama that God wants to show us. And when you stare at it long enough and you see that, you see the beauty, the power of what God's trying to show us here. 
You stare at the story. It says that eventually Abraham looks up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Look here, everybody, look here. Story. God says, don't you dare. I know now I'm ultimate. And all of a sudden, he sees a ram over here caught in the thicket. He goes and he gets the ram and he sacrifices the ram in the place of Isaac. And it's like, wow, I'm glad that story ended that way. Was that what the story was all about? That God showed up right at the end? No. You got to keep staring at the story because when you read your Bible, remember this, you stare at it long enough to listen to God and you look for Jesus. Because you realize that if you stare at this story long enough that Abraham eventually does see one of his descendants sacrificed. In the story of God in Matthew 1, it says this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah the son of David. Everybody say this out loud with me. The son of Abraham. And then if you fast forward the story of Jesus, this son of Abraham, to about chapter 27, same book, it says, as they were going out, out where? In about the same place, Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaac was, in about the same place, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. Whose cross? Jesus' cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and there they killed Jesus. But they didn't kill Jesus as much as Jesus was offered as a sacrifice in place of you, in place of me. Why in the world, why in the world did Jesus die on that mountain in that way. Everybody listen. Because whether you know this or not, God is preoccupied with you. And God is pursuing you and he literally died to have a relationship with you. And he did the ultimate in order to make that relationship possible. That when Jesus died, he said, there's not a ram in the thicket, but there's a lamb on the cross. And that lamb's name is Jesus. And when you embrace that lamb, that is how forgiveness of your sin happens. That's how you get a new identity as one of my children. That's how you get a security that your future is sealed. And it's only then, please hear me, it's only then that I begin to understand the rest of the relationships I have. I want you to write it this way. When I embrace God's sacrifice for me, I'm free to surrender my relationships to him. When I embrace God's sacrifice, you're saying, Dan, why you say that? Because my wife, everybody listen, my wife will never, never be able to meet all my needs. If, if you're looking to get married so that you can marry somebody who can meet all your needs, stop. Stop. Because you're going to sacrifice them on an altar of your expectations. 
My wife will never. But here's the deal. I realized that on the cross was a lamb. His name was Jesus. And when I embraced Jesus, I realized there is where the deepest longings of my heart are satisfied. And listen, only when I embrace that am I free to love my wife. That's where I'm free to love my wife because my relationship with my wife isn't based upon, well, you better give me and you better show up in this way and you better, and when she doesn't, I'm disappointed. But now my relationship with my wife is free to love her. Why? Because I've been loved, because I have an identity in Christ. Now I'm free to love. It's only when I embrace my identity in Christ and realize his love for me that now I'm free to love my children. My children don't have to be superstar athletes, don't have to be these incredible academics, don't have to be these successful businessmen in order for me to feel really good about, wow, I'm this. I know who I am. And so when my kids succeed, I'm free to love them in their success. When things go well, I'm free to love them. But probably more poignantly, when my kids fail, if you're a parent, your kid will fail. When my kid fails, I'm not crushed. I don't need to relate to them out of my disappointment and devastation because it somehow reflects on me. I know who I am. And now that I know who I am, I'm free to love them. I've been loved by God. And only when I begin to see the dynamic of that relationship, when I love God first, I love them more. When I love God first, I love them more. You say, well, what does it mean for me to love God first? Everybody listen. You grew up in church, you need to listen. I hear this all the time. People who grew up in church, I'm gonna just really work hard to love God more. It won't work. Gonna just, ugh. I'm going to knuckle down. It won't work. I meet so many disappointed Christians because I'm just trying really hard to love God and grit it out and gut it out. It's not how it happens. If you want to love God more, then you have to live your life under the waterfall of his love and grace. And the more that fills you, the more you can extend it. The more you experience it, the more you can give it. That's how it works. And when I live life under that and realize that my response is to love him, and as I love him, that love spills out onto those around me, I'm free to love them in a way that I could never dream. My identity is not wrapped up in how my kids perform. My identity is wrapped up in who I am in Jesus. You know what that means? I'm free to love my spouse and my kids more. For some of us in the room, you know what that means? If God loved me that much, I'm free to now listen to his voice. And if I find myself dating some guy that's asking me to do something different than God wants me to do, I'm free to listen to him. You know why? Because he did what was ultimate for me. You see, when God says, I don't want you to have any other gods before me, we immediately think of money, material things, health. And yet I honestly believe we live in a culture where we try to fit relationships into a place that God was only meant to be. 
And that's why for some of us in the room, our relationships devastate us and disappoint us because they were never meant to carry the weight of that expectation. And so God, as we pray, we're done with this conversation. I'm praying for my friends in this room. And I'm going to ask you with your heads bowed, you don't have to close your eyes, just get in a space where it's you and God. I want you right now, I want you to do this. What is that relationship or who is that person that has maybe somehow moved into that spot in your life? Whose voice is competing with God's? Who is it that you're waiting to hear approval from? Who are the people in your life that you'll do anything to keep that relationship, even if it means to alter or ignore what God says? Just, I, want their, I want their name to come. I'm going to ask you just to have a conversation with God. I'm going to say, God, would you please allow me to see not the ram in the thicket, but the lamb on the cross And God, would you let me be so overwhelmed by your love for me that it frees me to surrender that relationship to you so that my identity isn't wrapped up in them, my security isn't somehow wrapped up in them, that somehow, God, it doesn't doesn't devastate me, but God, that you would help me to love in a way that loves from the overflow of who I am in you. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never said yes to Jesus. Maybe it's your first time hearing that God loves you. Maybe you thought God was mad at you. But Jesus died for you and right there in your seat you can say, yes, Jesus, I believe you died in my place. You love me and I today want to say, yes, save me from my sin. I want you to lead the rest of my life. Man, if you had that conversation with God, I want to hear from you. But God, here we are. No no pretense. We're just coming before you saying, God, so many of us are disappointed in this room because relationships haven't panned out, haven't given us what we can only find in you. And so God, I pray that this conversation would drive us deeper into you so that then we are more free to surrender our relationships to you. And we look forward to how that's going to play out in our kid's life, our spouse's life, our friend's life. And God, if you need to change our relationship with our boyfriend or our girlfriend, we're saying, do it. Just do it. We surrender it to you. You know what? We trust you. We trust you. You are our God. And we're going to follow you. Thanks for making it very clear that you love us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.